Hi everyone, this is Aileen, and I am so excited to be interviewing my friend Colleen Rice for episode 45 of The Music Room. The title of this podcast episode is Perspectives of a Student Teaching Supervisor. I've known Colleen for years and was really excited to talk to her about her perspectives as she has been supervising student teachers. Before we begin, I want to go ahead and read her bio so you can find out a little bit more about her. And I should apologize because I believe in the episode I called her Colleen Satara, but that's actually her maiden name. Her married name is Colleen Rice. All right, so a little bit about Colleen. Colleen Rice coaches student teacher candidates in music education for Northern Illinois University. She has been in education for 20 years and spent 17 years teaching elementary music and beginning band in Chicago public schools. Colleen graduated from the University of Illinois with a Bachelor of Music Education from St. Xavier University with a Master of Educational Leadership. She is certified in both Kodai and ORF. Colleen lives in Naperville, Illinois with her husband and infant son. And like I said, I've known Colleen for many years. We used to do work together on the board of the Midwest Kodai Music Educators of America. And uh, I just love her fun personality and really think that you'll get a lot from this interview, whether or not you've had a student teacher or will have a student teacher in the future, or maybe you are a student teacher right now. She talks about EdTPA as well as other experiences that student teachers have and traits that make student teachers successful, as well as supervising teachers, how they can help student teachers succeed. So here's the show. You are listening to The Music Room with Aileen Miracle. Hi, Colleen. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Hi, Aileen. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. All right. So Colleen and I are going to talk about her journey being a student teaching supervisor. But first, Colleen, can you just tell us about yourself and your music educator journey? Sure. So um, I've been teaching music education for 20 years, and I've taught 17 years of that in Chicago public schools. I was at two schools, one school for 13 years, and then my last school for five years. I taught on the west side of Chicago, and I taught on the south side from Chicago, and I taught elementary general music and beginning band in a small choir. And there was a time when I had an orphan ensemble. Like, I did I did all the things. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so that's where I was there. And then I'm certified in Kodai, and we know each other from the MKMEA board, the Midwest Kodai. Uh-huh. And I was involved with CAKE for quite a while. I'm also certified in ORF. And two years ago, almost two years ago, yeah, not even two years ago, 2018, I got married finally um, met someone and got married and then no one thought it would happen to me <laughs> but it's true and my husband works in the suburbs so in Chicago public schools you need to live in the city to work there oh really and so yeah because you have to have it's re- there's a residency requirement so I quit because I didn't want to lose my pension because that would happen if you get fired so I quit we moved out to Naperville where we live now my husband works in Aurora and then I was pregnant. I got pregnant right away. And I had a crazy pregnancy and I was on bed rest and just rest for a while. And so I did not look for a full-time job because it would have been too much. Right. And and then I, I ended up working for NIU in January. Mary Lynn, the, one of the professors there and the student teaching coordinator called me and their person had a family emergency. And so she was looking for someone to do the job and I was bored and I accepted it because you know it's not a really physical mm-hmm. job so that is how I ended up in the role that I am and my son is medically complicated so I can't put him in daycare yet 
So it's perfect for right now because my parents come and watch him while I'm working and it's only a few times a month that I have to work out of the house. Great. All right, so describe your job as a student teacher supervisor. Okay, so we see the kid. I have three students per eight-week session. So the kids teach, they soon teach for 16 weeks, university students. And the first eight weeks, they do either elementary or high school, and then it switches mm -hmm. for the second eight weeks. In Illinois, it's a K-12 certificate, so you need experience on both levels. And I work with three students per eight weeks. Sometimes I see the same kids for all 16 weeks, but sometimes I don't. So it just depends on how they're assigned. Every week they send me a journal entry about what they did for the week, any questions or problems they're having, and then I respond back with my deepest advice mm -hmm. <laughs> about teaching. Uh -huh. And then um, I go and I visit them at their schools two to three times. So you have to go two times. I go three times if they're having trouble or if they want me to come again. That's happened every semester. So there's um, at least one that I go see. And then in the first eight weeks, the university students are working on their EdCPA projects. So I coach them with that. And that, that actually takes a lot of time. That's probably the most stressful and most important part of the job because that's part of their certification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually just had a student teacher who had to do ed today, so I'm very familiar with that. So that segues great into the, the next question. So tell us what ed is, which some of us are going to be familiar with and some aren't, and which states or regions of the country use it. Okay, so it's a portfolio project for certification, and when I looked at the numbers, there's 915 university programs that use it oh, wow. in 41 states, but only 18 states have laws requiring it. In Illinois, you have to pass the TPA to get your teacher certification. And in Illinois, they're doing away with the basic skills tests, which is, you know, just a pencil paper test for math and reading. They're getting rid of that because they figure if you can pass the TPA, you can read and do math, which is true. Sure, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, you still have to take the subject test. So, you know, the kids have to take the music subject test. But the actual project, it's you're teaching a mini unit. It's supposed to be between four and five hours. So four to five class periods. You design it, you teach it, and you reflect on it. And there's 15 rubrics in the EdTPA, which is a lot of rubrics. <laughs> and you need 42 out of 75 points to pass. If you are familiar with the Danielson, or if you're familiar with International Baccalaureate, it is very similar to designing either an IB unit or designing a Danielson observation project. So you need to have a statement of inquiry, or um, and they call it a central focus. So in the ATBA, you have a central focus. Every, you write a sentence, it has to have a couple language functions. There's a list you choose from. Everything in your project needs to relate back to that central focus. And that's, I think the hardest part is convincing the university students or showing the university students that they just can't go off on big tangents right. within their unit. Right. And you, the true to the Danielson, there needs, you need to prove that the students have learned. So the easiest way to do that is a pre-test and a post-test. I think it lends itself to general music very easily for that aspect of it. So the kids design a pre-test, they design a post-test. You have to spend some time convincing the university students to convince their students that they don't need to pass the pre-test. It's not, right. you know, they just take it. You have to prove that they learned, so you don't really want it to pass the pre-test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so if you're designing a good unit, everyone's gonna do poorly on the pre-test and do very well on the post-test. Mm -hmm. And in the EdTPA itself, in their portfolio, they're answering questions about how they designed it, 
why they picked the unit they picked. So they have to prove that the students needed to learn this material. And then how they did it, they have to send in artifacts, they have to send in two videos. They have to send in like evidence of the worksheets or anything, any paperwork that they did. A lot of my students script out the videos so that it's easier to read. And then the beginning part of the EdTPA is all about the knowledge of the students. They need to record who in the class has IEPs. They need to do an extensive write-up of the school, the socioeconomic class, the ethnicity of students, history of the music program, anything that will help determine why they chose this unit at the time that they chose it and why it was important for those kids to learn it. Right. I think there might be slightly different um, regulations with Ohio. Because if I remember correctly, and hopefully I'm not misspeaking, um, when my student teachers have done um, ed TPA, there are only three classes that they kind of, it's like a free mini lesson unit kind of thing. Yeah, you only have to pick one class that you focus on. Uh So if you're in the situation where you teach five fourth grades, you only have to pick one fourth grade. And then usually the kids use the other classes to practice. Yes. Yeah. And then they, yeah. And then they just record the one. And one of the parts of the project is you pick students to focus on. Uh And then you basically, when you write it up, you have to write that specific progress of those students. And like you track them through the project. Right. Basically. And then if you really, if you want a higher score, you have to make inferences about the rest of the students in the class. So you would say like, okay, student A, started with this kind of score, ended with this kind of score, 30% of the class was like student A, and they also show a similar trend. Yeah. Uh, sounds mostly like it is in Ohio, but there might be a few okay. changes. So just the, as people are listening to this, keep that in mind that the way that Colleen is describing it, it might be slightly different in your state if your state is doing it, but it sounds really similar. There's yep. it's just the thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing is, it's kind of vague. <laughs> I think, and they don't give you all the information. Continuing on my journey here, I will be grading scoring for Pearson starting at the end of January. So I'll go through the training and then score from all over the United States. And then I'll probably be able to explain it a lot better. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if you just read the rubrics and you read the, what they send you, you need to read it about a hundred times because there's a lot of it. Right. And I do think they keep it a little bit vague to see what you will do Right. In your project, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. So as you've been a student teaching supervisor and you've worked with student teachers on what have you learned? And, and also, the part of that question is, what do you think cooperating teachers can do to help students succeed? Working with university students, I think, is so interesting, especially for me, because they don't know me in any other context, mm-hmm. except this person who shows up and works with them six times, and they're supposed to call and ask for all this help, right. and they will put it off. You know, if it's due in, you know, nine weeks, they will wait until weeks seven and eight and nine. Right. So uh, the university has it set up where they meet every other week as a group mm-hmm. to discuss their TPA, and... You know, I'm always, every time I read a journal, I'm like, what's your central focus? What's your central focus? What's your central focus? Because if they don't have that, it's not going to fly. I'm like, what's your plan? What are you doing? And like, I'm learning that you just have to keep on them for that. And then also, a lot of these students don't know, when you plan a unit, you need to start from the end. What's the goal of the unit? What do you want them to learn? And then you need to design it backwards. And that an engaging unit is not necessarily a bunch of really fun activities. Mm-hmm. You know, your your activities should be fine. That's not how you plan it. You don't plan, this. I'm going to do this, this activity, this activity, this activity, and then give them a test. You plan the test, and then you plan your activities. 
so I feel like I say, how are you going to prove this a lot? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, to them and they're like, oh, we're going to do this. Okay. But how are you going to prove that they learned? How are you going to show other people that aren't in your classroom that they did this and that they learned something from it? You know, gone are the days of we're doing this for the concert. And part of the write-up is they have to write up the philosophies that they've used to design the unit. So they have to know that. The other things I've learned is that they should not work ahead of where their whole class is. It's not all about the videotaping. This year, my kids were in a panic. Oh, my university students, they were just like, we have to start videotaping, we have to start videotaping. I'm like, you don't have a unit yet. You don't right. have a central focus yet. Just calm down. <laughs> you don't right. need to videotape yeah. tomorrow. Like, it's going to be okay. They'll take all eight weeks to do it. You know, they shouldn't work too far ahead because the university will help them. However, and this is where the cooperating teachers can help. If you have a student teacher who's teaching a general music class and you see them once a week, if they're supposed to do a four to five hour unit, they need to start that in week four. Right. You know, if you only see the kids once a week, you need to get on it and get going. So as a cooperating teacher, you can say, what's your central focus? What's your plan? When I had student teachers, I always gave them a syllabus of what they were teaching every week. I just Mm -hmm. gave it to them at the beginning. And that's in there. Like week four, you need to start videotaping. You need to start your unit. That should be the pre-test week. If you have a class, because I do, I supervise band and orchestra and choir students as well. So, you know, those, I think, middle school and high school, where they see the teacher every day, you know, you can get this project done in a week, which I did have a student that needed to redo her project because she started everything too early. <laughs> she's right. like, I'm just going to videotape. <laughs> I was like, you don't have a project, but okay. Right. <laughs> she had to redo it. But she saw the kids every day, so she could do that. If you're in general music, you can't necessarily right. do that. So how else can cooperating teachers help? I sent you two links. One of them is from the NEA, which if, so if you like to read things in paragraphs, that's a really good link. If you like to read things in bullet points, the other link I sent you, (laughs) which I'm a bullet point person. So yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm like, oh, bullet points, this is really helpful. Yeah. But you can, yeah, right? Okay. (laughs) You can help your student teachers. They need to write about the IEPs of the class. So have your IEPs ready and available for the class that they pick. You can help them pick the class. The scorers do look for student engagement on the videos, which means they don't want off-test behavior. They don't want side conversations. So have a behavior plan that your student teacher can reference and use. Even if the students behave for you, we all know that when the student teacher is in charge, they don't behave as well um, as they would. So you need to have some kind of plan for that, for the teacher to use. And then pick a class. They have to sign a consent form for the video the parents do. And it's a separate consent form from any that are signed for the school. So if you know of a class where there's a high percentage of kids that won't give consent, Mm -hmm. encourage your student teacher to pick a different class. Right. You want a high percent of consent forms. You want a class that's going to be participate and be engaged. And, you know, that just differs from school to school. Right. And let's see. So other ways, you know, you can help your student teacher design measurable goals. You can help your student teacher with the videotaping and the placement of the video. They want to see the kids. They don't just want to see the teacher teaching the lesson because they're looking for engagement. And a lot of the questions the student teachers have to answer are in reference to the video. You know, they'll say like, you can see student A, you can see student B. So they should have their focus students on the videos if possible. should be able to see the students and they should be able to hear what the student teacher is saying while they're teaching. Right. A couple yeah. of things that I want to mention, um, just as I've had experience with student teachers, is it depends on how long the placement is. When I seen that years ago, um, it was a 16-week placement. But That's crazy. 
Yeah, Capital University, theirs is shorter. Like I usually have student teachers for I want to say like six or seven weeks and then they go to the placement. That's like no time. I know. <laughs> All your listeners right. didn't have to see my job drive. <laughs> 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 like my my job I was like six weeks. I think yeah. I did have when I had student teachers when I was teaching, I had one that was six weeks and the rest of them were eight weeks. And it's like no time. Yeah, this is no time. time. I think yeah. it does end up being about seven or six and a half or something like that. But yeah, okay. too much time. So when I've had student teachers, it's like week two. We're sitting down and looking at yeah. ICs and choosing a class because it's just not. Yeah. Much. And that's it. You have to sit down with your student teacher and look at that. And then the other thing I tell everyone is look at the days you have off. Because in, I know in Chicago, November was crazy because we were off for Veterans Day. We were after Thanksgiving, and then we were off for parent-teacher conferences. Right. In yeah. There. yeah, so in, like, if your student teacher is like, oh, I'm going to do this class. Well, if you don't see that class on Tuesdays, yeah. right. you know, or you if they have a field have trip. or Yeah, yeah you almost have to plan for potential snow days, too. Like, it's better to yes. really because now I have, like, an ABCDE rotating schedule where, like, if Tuesday is supposed to be a C day and it's a snow day, then okay. it's a C day. So then I still see those students, but it used to be, if it was a snow day, I would just miss time with those. You just miss. Yeah. So like in that, if yeah. a snow day happened on the day you're supposed to record, that can get really tricky. So yeah, that's a good point. Really, almost give yourself buffer. You know. Yeah, and I mean, again, if you see those students twice a week, some schools general music is three times a week. You don't have as much worry, right? As much worry, but it's, you do have to plan for it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention, just in as I've been working with student teachers, I've done this with, I want to say two to th- maybe three different student teachers for the TPA. I had one of the lessons they recorded was a center's lesson. Mm-hmm. So those of you who are comfortable teaching or if you've used centers before, I find that to be a good way. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it's I find that to be a good way. I love doing centers in my classroom. I used it a lot. I had my kids for an hour, so we always did a Kodai based for 30 minutes and then we did centers for 20 minutes. Um, Partly because actively teaching for an hour all day long is a lot. Yeah. Yeah, So um, we did centers. The only concern to it is, does it relate to the central focus? Yes. Yeah. Because if you're just like, oh, well, here's a center lesson because centers are cool. That doesn't make, it has to relate. And so as long as it relates, that's great. But you... I mean, you can pass the TVA without a center lesson. Right. So, I would just you know. get out there because I think, you know, it can be easy to show one-on-one work with students during centers, especially those students that you need to see one-on-one. Yeah. To show the one-on-one and then show the students taking ownership right. as well. Because it's not, then it's not just teacher direct instruction. Yeah. So, yeah. And yeah. in the write-up, we do have to talk about the answers that the students gave and the dialogue of the students. So in the videos, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting more dialogue than just teacher asks a question, student gives an answer, teacher asks a question, student gives an answer. So Centers is very helpful for that kind of interaction or or any small group work, really, if you don't want to do Centers. Yeah. So as you've observed different music classrooms in the Chicago area, what are some common challenges that you've seen? This is such an interesting question because I've been thinking... The answers to this are so broad, but they're so simple because Illinois funds their education based on property taxes of the town. And where I go to observe, I've gone east towards Chicago once 
And the rest of the time, I'm going out to these Western Central Illinois small towns mm-hmm. or a couple suburbs near me. So Naperville is the third largest city in Illinois, and it is a suburb. Mm-hmm. I have not actually observed anyone in Naperville. <laughs> <laughs> I've observed in Oswego, which is another town over, Batavia, next suburb over, Aurora, next suburb over, Elgin, which is a very large suburb and very urban, has a very urban feel to it. I lived in Chicago for 17 years, so a lot of small, these small towns to me have this very rural feel. Like there's a grocery store and a Burger King and a Walgreens and right. a school. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then farms everywhere. Like there's all these farms. <laughs> like, what? Where am I? A lot of this is small town living. And I've observed in schools, like in Elgin, I observed, I was the only white person there, like including my student teacher and a cooperating teacher. And then I have observed in schools where there is no person of color at all. And it's in the band room or the choir room or the general music room. And it's so interesting. I've observed in schools that are overcrowded. I've observed in schools that there's 12 kids in the class. Um, It's really interesting. I've observed in schools that have fabulous programs, but everything is just old. The school's old, the equipment's old. Like you can just tell it's old. Right. But the programs are fabulous. I've observed in places that are brand new everything. So space constraints seem to be a general problem mm-hmm. and scheduling. No one is ever happy with their schedule. So, you know, in middle school, sometimes that looks like we don't have enough people to do the job. I observed at a school where the middle school music program, the band, orchestra, choir, general music program, won a national award for having one of the top programs in the United States applied for this award. And the school district responded by cutting the orchestra teacher. Oh, my God. Yeah. That just all happened to go down, like, the day that I, oh, my God. And I know the teachers at that school, like, we went to university together. And I was just like, oh, my God. I think that's crazy. And then I've observed at schools where they have plenty of people for all the jobs. But scheduling, there's some schools where the kids have lessons for band and orchestra. There's some schools where they don't have lessons. There's some schools where they see the kids every day. Some schools where they don't see the kids every day. General music schedules are always all over the map. Sometimes, like one of the choir directors I just observed, her program's fabulous, but they now have her having her teach during the lunch periods, so she can't ever see the kids extra to set up for concerts and things, and so that's just harder. Mm-hmm. Scheduling's a nightmare no matter where you are, I right. think. Yeah. So. I'm sure it's interesting just going to all those different schools and just seeing like what it's so interesting because I've observed schools where there's one on one to one technology, which we didn't have in my school. Mm -hmm. And just seeing the way music teachers implement one to one and just having the kids record their playing tests at home, send them to Google Classroom. And I did have one teacher say to me, This person was just like, I don't want to do that because then the kids will practice and practice and I'll get an A. And I'm like, is that the point to practice and practice and practice and I'll get it? Like that is the that is the exact yeah, point that's of the playing point. test. <laughs> I was like, you might need to leave education, person. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yes, actually, please practice. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Anyway, so but I just the things that they're doing with that. There was a teacher that just wrote little um, exercises and then sent them to kids on the computer and they would do that in their lessons and then they would take all their quizzes in their lessons on the iPad. It was really interesting. So yeah. I'm getting lots of ideas. I have a whole notebook yeah. oh, when great. I go back in the classroom. Yeah. Wow. So when you think about the student teachers you've supervised who think successful, what are some common traits? Okay, so I pulled these ideas out of the student teachers I had when I was teaching and then the ones I see now. 
yeah. the student teachers that are the most successful carry a notebook around and take notes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're student teaching, everything is so overwhelming mm -hmm. that you do not remember everything someone has said to you minute to minute. You don't remember your feedback. So the ones that are most successful carry around a notebook, write down all their ideas. I carry around a notebook. I mean, you probably do too because you know, just we got to write it down as soon as you can. And now we all have technology on our hands. So take notes on your phone, whatever you need to do. The ones that are most successful come early and stay late. They offer to do extra work, design the units, pull out extra pieces. They're hardworking, mm -hmm. hardworking kids. And they rise to the challenge mm -hmm. that the students present them because I had a couple students who were just floored with how little the elementary students knew, you know, like, oh my gosh, kindergarten, we have to teach them everything. Yeah, you have to teach them everything. Yeah. <laughs> you have to stand in a line, how to be in a circle. <laughs> how to sit, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, everything. Yeah. And they were just floored at this. And a couple of them, it set the adult student teachers back. Like, wait, what? They're like, we don't know what to do now. We thought that we'd get to just teach music. Well, no, you're teaching all the things. And yeah. I've seen kids really rise to the occasion to be like, all right, this is what you need to learn. This is what I'm going to teach you. And classroom management also. I think that the student teachers that are most successful have had some kind of experience with students. Either teaching at a camp, you know, they have other siblings, right. they have children themselves. They know how to manage kids and they know what kids like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, when you're talking about taking notes, um, it reminded me of there, there have been times when either I've had student teachers in my room or I've had people come and observe me and I'm always happy when I speak. They have a notebook or they're mm -hmm. typing on their laptop or whatever. They're somehow taking notes. But I've had other people who've like come and observed me or have been student teachers who just sit there the first day watching me and don't write anything down. And I'm like, okay, maybe your memory is better than mine. Like I'll give you that. But I think you probably do want to write this down. <laughs> I, I play in a community band, and it's like my pet peeve when musicians don't write in the directions on their part. I mean, I mean, we're adults, and this person I sit next to, she's like, oh, I'll just remember that. And I took my pencil, and I was like, no, you won't. <laughs> just wrote it, like a breath mark. I'm like, you will not. <laughs> no one will remember this. We rehearse once a week. Come on, write yeah, it in your And <laughs> says so that if you actually write something down, actually, I feel like I just read a study that if you write something down, it's instead of typing it like yes you remember it better way to remember to actually longhand to, to do it and it was interesting one of my student teachers he was a great teacher this was years ago he kept a notebook and then after like halfway through he just stopped using it and his student teaching just fell apart oh wow interesting. it just fell apart and i pulled him aside i was like you stopped using your notebook everything's falling apart what's going on and he said to me he said I have ADD and he said I wanted to try not using that notebook and I was like no go back to that notebook yeah <laughs> because you know I said don't be ashamed about it don't be embarrassed about it I mean I carried around a legal pad everywhere when I was right. teaching because you know when you're seeing so many students and someone pops their head in and is like so-and-so is now carrying an inhaler because they have really bad asthma well you have to write that down because you have to remember it Right. You know, there's things you just have to remember. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You're writing stuff down or taking notes. And yeah, those people are really successful. Yeah, and actually yeah. that kind of reminds me of like, when I went through my credit training. And this is probably just the way I interpreted things. I interpreted like I should have my entire lesson memorized from start to finish. 
and not look at anything. And I it just, it all magically be in my head. And then I felt this pressure that I had to know all of my transitions, all of my, oh my starting pitches, everything like in my head. And then at one point I was like, what, why can't I just look at, why can't I have a reference point? There's nothing wrong with that. And now I use like an agenda where it'll show that, like the kids know, even if it's a yep. song or singing game, like I have an order of things on the board, which helps me. But I still also sometimes refer to my lesson plan. There is no shame in that. It's okay to look. It's okay to write. <laughs> it is okay. The music teacher police are not going. <laughs> we had to have our agenda posted in our classrooms. And then I always just added in whatever I needed to remember. Right. I stuck it in the agenda. And I had a lot of kids that spoke Spanish. So sometimes I would just write the Spanish translation yeah. of a direction or something on the backboard where only I could see it when I was teaching because it was just directly across from me. And it's something that I talked to my student teachers about. Like, you don't have to have everything memorized. Write it where you can see it. Right. And they're like, well, what if the kids see it? Who cares if the kids see it? Right. It's not a secret. <laughs> yeah. You can write it up. Yeah. Also, going back to the Kodai training, I think the way that we probably were both trained was that it was like this magical discovery. This that magical thing, yeah. Coming, which there is magic to that, but sometimes it is good for kids to know what's coming up. Even if you're not telling them, we're going to do this song, or we are learning 16th notes or whatever, but just so they have a general idea of what's coming up, that's actually good for them. It is, and we just have, I think, we have a lot of different kinds of learners now that mm -hmm. we didn't have, and... Like we have different kinds of kids and they right. need, you know, maybe the one kid in your classroom is like, oh, we're going to sing this song way down here in the end. And that's the only thing that kids live in for that day is that song right. in the end. Right. So, so knows, you know, I need he to knows it's coming. Yeah. Okay. So as cooperating teachers, how can we structure our student teacher experiences to be more successful? So have a syllabus, talk through what's expected week by week. One of the things I always did with the kids in my classroom that came in, I would have them observe me for a few days and then team teach with me. I would teach a kindergarten class. They would teach a kindergarten class, same lesson, different class. And then I always had them teach the class they were most comfortable with first. So if they like sixth grade, we taught sixth grade. But then the next week, we immediately went to where they were uncomfortable too. Right. Because you need more experience with those kids. As far as know your schedule, know your days off, know when your concert's coming. If you have a concert that falls right at the end of the ed TPA cycle, your student teacher might have to start their ed TPA a little earlier. Mm -hmm. Read the handbook the university sends you because there's also usually helpful date information in there. Understand that the ed TPA project, at least in Illinois and the other 17 states, it doesn't come from the university. It comes from the state. You have to do it to pass. Sometimes when I go into schools, I feel like an NCBA therapist because the cooperating teacher sits down and tells me everything they don't like about the projects. <laughs> I'm just like, well, I can't help you with that. Right. You know, and in some ways it's not best practices in music education, but that doesn't matter because you have to do the projects. Right. So, you know, and a lot of people are disgruntled because if you try to do it performance-based and give every kid a playing test at the beginning and the end, it's very time-consuming. Right. And so we encourage our students not to do a performance-based at CBA. Mm -hmm. And a lot of conductors and directors get upset by that because they have performance-based classrooms. Right. right. And But you need to understand, it's a week-long unit in one of your classes. Right. So, you know, this, that. And then my other thing, and it will always be my thing, is have a clear management system with posted expectations that any director that comes in your classroom knows what's expected of the students. And then the students know that you know. And it's just, it's so much better for that. Yeah, great job. 
right, so I know you already mentioned a couple of resources, um, which I will put those in the show notes. And for those of you listening, if you go to my blog at mrsmiraclesmusicroom.com and you click on podcast and then podcast 45, you'll find the links that Colleen mentioned earlier in the show. But are there any other resources you would recommend for those people who are about to have a student teacher in their classroom? So again, just read what the university sends you because there's tons of stuff in their student teaching handbooks about the expectations and then what they should be doing. When I started this job, I just went to my podcast app and I Googled NCPA podcasts and like three or four came up and I didn't want to list them here because the NCPA changes just a little bit every year. Now, now I know that. Right. <laughs> That's a little bit frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is different this year. Okay. Right. So I didn't want to list those podcasts, but if you are hosting a student teacher who has the NCPA, that is a great way to just find some more information i listen to them in the car i think they're like 20 minutes long yeah so yeah that's a good idea i also want to recommend carla chuinski you know carla mm -hmm. she has mm -hmm. a student teacher handbook on teachers pay teachers that i can link to in the show oh yeah that's like a great way to lay out your syllabus like you just mentioned to give out that you are in school that you're not in school lay out your expectations that kind of thing it's like a template that you can just type into and i've used that for years perfect yeah when i started having student teachers i have some aunts that teach in wisconsin and in wisconsin you have to take a university class before you have a student teacher so they just gave me all their notes they sent me down they're like this is what you do oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's where i've got all my information from so yeah. if you know anyone in wisconsin talk to them <laughs> 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 or use carla's carla's book because that yes. that's really helpful yeah. yeah all right anything else about being a student teaching supervisor um you know it's a perfect job for right now that's, yeah. yeah, like I really like working with the university students, which means at this point I've taught every level except high school, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it would be yeah. a really cool experience to be able to go in, inside other people's classrooms and see what like the coordinating, the cooperating teacher is doing, see what the student teacher is doing. Yeah, that's. And you know, being new to this area after living in Chicago so long, it's really neat to go out and see other schools and see how they do things. I was a little bit scared of moving to the suburbs, so getting into the schools is really cool to just go in as a visitor and see. Yeah. 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 Awesome. All right, well, do you want to talk about what we're consuming? Ooh, what I'm consuming. Um, embarrassing. I don't read a lot of stuff about music education. <laughs> okay. I should have said that does not have to be education related at all. Be <laughs> Good, because it's not. <laughs> so um, the things that I am into, I like to listen to podcasts and I love to read fiction and self-help books. <laughs> so my favorite podcast right now, the NPR Life Kit Parenting Podcast. Okay. The Slate Parents as Mom and Dad are Fighting podcast, which I really enjoy. Uh -huh. And then there's the Slate Self-Help is um, Dear Prudence. And then I listen to another Slate podcast. I subscribe to Slate podcast. So it's the Amicus podcast, which is coverage of the Supreme Court. And so they go through all the court cases. And it's, like, that is very interesting. I like that one a lot. I also listen to How to Be a Girl, which is about a mom who has a transgender daughter. Uh -huh. And that is a very, very good podcast. I got myself a subscription to the New York Times Digital for Christmas and to the cooking. So I've been cooking up a store <laughs> in my kitchen Hi. using all the Times cooking apps. And then I'm reading a book called Transitions, Making Sense of Life's Changes. 
Uh-huh. So, you know, I got married. I moved, I quit my job. I moved. Now I have a new job. And then I'm going to have another new job writing for Pearson. And then they asked me to work with their general music university students this year as well as the student teachers. So there's a lot of new things going on for me. So I've got the transition book. And then, you know, it's vacation. So I just read um, Pride, Prejudice and Other Flavors. One of the characters is a chef. So um, that might also explain why I've been cooking crazy. And then I'm reading The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, which like everyone is reading right now, the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, you know what's so funny is I have Handmaid's Tale on my my table to read. I just got that for Christmas. I haven't read it yet. It was really good. And I was not going to read the sequel because, you know, the Netflix show, I guess the second season is a lot of violence on women. And, you know, then Margaret Atwood wrote this next book. And that is not how the book is at all. It is very good. The story is very good. So okay. um, if anyone had any qualms about reading it, don't. It's a fabulous okay. book. It's yeah. Enough. I actually started watching Handmaid's Tale with my husband. And we have a lot of shows we're watching right now that are pretty intense. And that's okay. just like a little bit over the top intense wise for him. So I want to keep watching it. It is intense. <laughs> But I do want to keep watching it, so I, it might just be one that I watch while I'm, like, putting away like, okay. laundry or it, something. But. The first season follows the book very closely. Okay, okay. So, you're, like, you're going to spoil the entire book for yourself. Okay. <laughs> you watch it. But, yeah, um, I can read the book first and watch the, the show. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, because I don't like watching intense TV shows. It just it unsettles me too much. So we watch a lot of cooking shows and I don't watch a lot of TV because I would rather read. So and then in the evenings now, I'm just tired from taking care of the baby all day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's the other thing that's keeping me busy is taking care of the baby. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so speaking of cooking, I just downloaded the, I don't know if you say Melthy or Mealthy app because I just got a Instapot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just got that for Christmas. So the Melthy or Melthy, it's like M-E-A-L-E-H-Y app is awesome for a bunch of like instant pot kind of recipe. So I need to I, get an instant pot. Oh, it's amazing. So I actually, my husband is really the cook in the family. So he usually is the one doing all the cooking. There are certain aspects of cooking that I like, but I have come to realize that the part of cooking that I like the least is the cooking of the meat. Because I'm always like self-conscious, like, am I cooking this long enough? Am I doing the right thing? And just having to stand there over the stove. So what's really nice about the Instant Pot is pretty much the prep work is like, you know, making a marinade or putting the spices together or whatever. And then you put it all into the pot and you close the lid and you cook it for four or five minutes and it's done. It's amazing. I was thinking of getting one of these. My son has physical therapy and speech therapy. Uh-huh. On Wednesdays, and so we don't get home until like seven, uh-huh. and that is not enough time to cook food. But I'm like, well, if I'm an instant pot, I might yeah. go faster, you know, because yeah. I'm exactly. not, I don't like a lot of crock pot food because I just am not a big stew person, you know. Yeah. So the stuff that we have now, I've only made two meals out of the instant pot so far, but one was a chicken and rice, like chicken shawarma dish. Oh, yum! I could send you that recipe if you're interested. Please do. <laughs> Um, and then yesterday I did like a shrimp. It was also rice. So rice seems to be pretty common. Shrimp and rice dish, which was spicy and good. And then today I think I'm making a jambalaya. So Ooh, that'll be delicious. Yeah. And I know there's probably more than just like meat and rice. I'm sure that there's more than that, but that's kind of where we started with it. So yeah, it's not just stews. <laughs> okay. 
I don't know, I'm telling people on the Instagram, but so far we're loving it. So, <laughs> you know, prepare, I, well, part of me also feels like I don't need another kitchen gadget because I have so many kitchen gadgets. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but I do like to cook and I do have some Christmas cash. So, so you can oh, there you go. <laughs> get it. I'll get it in the pot and then it'll be great. And then we can talk. I did see your post on Facebook about it. I'm like, oh, you talk about the it's pot. <laughs> All right. And then I want to mention one other thing as far as what I'm consuming. I have not consumed this yet. It might be more like a gift that I give student teachers. So that's why I wanted to mention it because I thought it sounded like a great student teaching gift. I saw it on Instagram. There's a book by Jen Rafferty, which I can link to in the show notes, called A Place in the Stock, Finding Your Way as a Music Teacher. And I think that was yeah. Oh, I want to read that. Yeah. Yeah, it's on Amazon. And I, like I said, I just randomly saw it on Instagram and was like, what? I want to follow on Instagram has a book about being a music teacher. That's so cool. Yeah. Like I always like to give gifts at the end of student teaching, which often. Yes. Puppets or like teaching. Yes. Whatever, but I think that would be a great one to give. Well, I mean, I kind of went through an identity crisis when I started teaching because the thing that I loved to do was now the thing that I did. And, you know, you're doing it and you're throwing yourself into this and then you realize you have no hobbies because right. the thing that was your hobby is now your job and it was yeah. really hard for me yeah I craft so like now I have craft like I had to make myself find other things that I like to do that weren't just music related and I'm lucky because in some ways I'm very lucky you know I didn't get married until I was 40 so and then we had a baby at 41 which right. what a blessing to just, you know have all that but I had 20 years of teaching under my belt mm-hmm. so I'm not trying to, you know, start a family and go to grad school and get certified in Kodai. And, you know, right. those, there are people out there who I'm just, you know, they have three kids and they are working like crazy. And it's, right. it's, yeah, I don't know how anybody's still, actually the majority of people are doing it that way. And right. yeah. Yeah. I'm tired of just thinking about those people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I can see where it's, you lose yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to read that. I just wrote that down. Yeah. Well, it good. so fun having you on the podcast, Colleen. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm very yeah. excited. Is there anywhere where we can find you? Like, you so, yes. So I will explain the story behind this before I give my Instagram and Facebook page. So my main name was Satara, Colleen Satara. My middle name is Elizabeth. Since high school, my friends have called me Colleen, etc. <laughs> so... <laughs> That is, and like I said, I'm 42, so the majority of my life was not married. So my Instagram handle is Colleen, etc. C O L L E E N E T C. And then um, you'll see all the fun food that I cook, and you'll see my baby quite a bit on Instagram. Awesome. <laughs> and then my Facebook page is Colleen, etc. Rice is my last name, R I C. So Colleen, E T C, R I C. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Colleen. Thank you. All right. Happy New Year. You too. Bye. Bye.